0: show. This afternoon we got the minutes from the last Federal Open Market Committee meeting which took place a few weeks ago and this was the meeting where the Federal Reserve did what is now being described as probably the biggest policy shift in the history of the Fed. I mean really an abrupt about-face where they went from everything is great, we're going to keep on raising interest rates, and we are on autopilot, we're just going to let the balance sheet continue to decline. Uh, And all of a sudden now they're, they're patient, meaning they're not going to raise rates at all in the foreseeable future. And not only is the balance sheet reduction program no longer on autopilot, but it is now going to end prematurely sometime this year. Of course, the balance sheet is still north of $4 trillion, and if the reduction program comes to an end this year, you're still going to be talking about a balance sheet 3 to $4 trillion in size, which would mean that almost all of the mortgages and treasuries which the Federal Reserve purchased in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis that it purchased as part of its quantitative easing programs, 1, 2, and 3. Almost all of that debt will remain on its balance sheet after the Fed has finished shrinking it. Also, uh, Federal Open Market Committee officials are now talking about quantitative easing once again as just another tool in the Fed's toolbox that it's no longer something that's just going to be pulled out when there's an emergency it's just going to be a normal policy tool for the Fed to deal with recessions and of course that's going to be their main tool given that this next recession is going to start when interest rates are at 2 and a quarter percent And so there's not a lot of room for the Fed to try to artificially stimulate the economy when it hardly has any room to reduce rates because they're already so low. So the Fed is going to have to do more quantitative easing. Now, of course, what does that mean about the Fed's balance sheet? That means that it's ultimately gonna be much higher than it was when the Fed began its current operation quantitative tightening We're going to be higher than we were before it started. And again, all this does is confirm what I've known all along, what I've been saying all along, that quantitative easing is debt monetization. It is a permanent source of liquidity for the government where the central bank just creates money out of thin air and uses that money to buy government debt. That is exactly what Ben Bernanke assured Congress they were not doing. When he was first asked in 2009 or 2010, I forget the exact date, by Congress when he was testifying, when Congress was saying, hey, you're monetizing the debt, this is a bad to do. This is banana republic. Ben Bernanke said, we are not monetizing the debt. He said the difference between nations that monetize the debt and what the Federal Reserve was doing is that when nations are monetizing debt, it's a permanent source of financing. Uh, ben Bernanke assured Congress that all of the bonds that the government was buying were just going to be on the balance sheet temporarily. That when the emergency was over, the Fed was going to sell whatever bonds it bought during the emergency. Now, at the time, I said that wasn't true. Now, whether Ben Bernanke knew it wasn't true and was lying or if he was just mistaken, uh, nobody but Ben Bernanke knows. But at the time, I said, that's not true. I said, there is no way the Fed is going to be able to uh, sell off these securities that this is, in fact, debt monetization. Well, now we know for a fact, even though it's 10 years later, we now have an official admission by the Federal Reserve that they did monetize the debt. Now, the question is, had Ben Bernanke been forthright with Congress back then, uh, would they allow the Fed to, to do these programs? If the Fed had said, yes, this is monetization, we're buying these bonds and we're never going to sell them, but they were pretending all along that it was temporary, and I was saying from the beginning that it was permanent. That's why I kept saying that we're going to have more QEs and mocky movies. That's why I said we're in a monetary roach motel, except at the time, nobody believed me. Well, it turns out that I was right because now the Fed has made it official. They are never going to shrink their balance sheet back to where it was before the crisis. That means the entire increase, based on wherever they stopped shrinking it, that entire increase was monetized. And of course, when we have the next recession, they're going to have to buy back whatever they just sold and then some, and the balance sheet's going to run up to new highs. You know, and also, this about-face that the Fed just did, everybody is acting as if, This was a surprise that, oh, you know, it was all based on some new information that the Fed was going to uh, continue to raise rates. They were going to shrink their balance sheet. But then something happened and they couldn't do it. They are missing the point that whatever that something was that happened was bound to happen from the start. I always said it was only a question of what the excuse would be for the Fed to abort the uh, balance sheet shrinking and the normalization of interest rates. This was not a surprise to me. The only thing that surprised me is that it took so long to get to the point where the Fed had to call it off. The markets we so dumb that the Fed was able to continue this charade all the way until now, until the fourth quarter of 2018. And then they finally had to admit that they weren't going to keep raising rates and that they weren't going to be able to unwind their balance sheet because the markets finally were scared and they should have been scared a lot sooner. But, you know, everybody was too drunk on tax cuts and make America great again. And this false belief that everything was fine. And then all of a sudden they got a shock of reality. And now the Fed has come back uh, with another lifeline and temporarily uh, caused the market to bounce. And this is where we are now. And, in fact, the market is not rising as much. We got, again, yesterday you had Donald Trump came out. And said that the uh, the deadline for the sanctions or the new tariffs to be imposed on China is not a magical date. Basically saying that, well, we have this date, but you know, if we don't make make the date, you know, maybe we're not going to uh, have uh, have the tariffs. And you know, the market rallied a little bit on that, but it couldn't really sustain much of the route. So the the fact that we can't get more mileage out of the same regurgitated bullish news. Could be an indication, again, that the market is running out of steam. The Dow managed to add on about 63 points today, even though there was, I think, a headline that came by about tariffs potentially on European cars. In fact, that's actually caused the gold market to sell off a little bit. It ended up down a couple of bucks on the day, not really reacting much to the, the Fed minutes, because I think gold actually reacted yesterday, because yesterday you had another headline story. You had Cleveland Fed President Mester came out and basically said that she supported, uh, you know, a, a end to the balance sheet reduction this year. And gold was up $18 an ounce yesterday, uh, you know, based on that. So, you know, I didn't really have a a lot of a lot left to rally on the minutes when we pretty much got that rally yesterday. In fact, gold closed down about 2 bucks today, down at uh, 1338ish. We were up maybe around 1345 earlier in the morning before the minutes came out. But again, the big move was yesterday, but I don't think the move is over. I think we you know, we're up against some resistance and I have a pretty good feeling that this time we're going to cut through that resistance you know especially i was listening on cnbc and scott nations you know who has always been my nemesis back when they used to have me on in fact the last time i was on cnbc was almost two years ago uh, and scott nations was there with me and basically scott nations was yelling at me for recommending gold. He was questioning my objectivity. He said that I was scaremongering and you know people shouldn't be buying gold and I was dishonest and I was simply trying to sell gold and look, yes, shift gold sells gold really what we do at shift gold is we help people buy gold because i don't sell my own gold i'm buying gold and i'm trying to advocate other people buy gold too and so i help them do that through shift gold i mean i'm a middleman i buy gold uh wholesale and turn around and sell it retail so i'm not really selling any gold i am helping people to accumulate gold and that is you know, what I'm trying to do. And of course, I'm not just telling people to buy gold. I mean, gold is part of what I do. I made this point to Scott Nations. I also tell people that they should be investing in stocks. They should be investing in bonds, that they should have balanced, diversified portfolios. But what I am advocating is that people stay away from the U.S. market and the U.S. dollar because I believe a major crisis, a dollar crisis and a sovereign debt crisis is coming. And you know he was just uh, you know telling me I was a fool for buying gold. Of course the price is higher now, but I turned the tables. I remember in that interview I basically said, wait a minute, you're accusing me of being a shill. What about CNBC? What about all the people that come on constantly and just tout U.S. stocks? They're never bearish. They're always bullish. Everything is great, right? Why don't you accuse them of talking their books? Why don't you accuse them? Of uh, you know of uh, of of uh, you know being dishonest, and that was the last time I was on CNBC. It was almost two years ago. It'll be two years in April, uh, and that was the very last appearance that I was on. Maybe it had something to do with my calling out CNBC on you know on the mindless cheerleader that goes on there for the U.S. economy, the U.S. stock market, because that's what they were accusing me of when it comes to gold. But when I turned the tables on them, I guess the way they responded was by not having me on again. But The reason I bring this up is because Scott Nations was on CNBC uh, today and yesterday telling people to short gold. That was his great idea of a great trade was that, hey, go out and short gold, right? And I think he has a stop maybe about $30 higher. And my feeling is that anybody following his advice is going to be stopped out. And, you know, one of the rationales that Nations used for why this is a great time to short gold. He said that the dollar is near the highs. And so we've had a strong dollar and a strong dollar is a headwind for gold. And therefore you should sell gold. Now, while he is correct that a strong dollar is a headwind for gold, what he is overlooking is that gold is rising despite that headwind, which means it's really strong, right? If gold can go up even with a headwind, that's a good sign. What, What um, nations should be thinking about is, wait a minute. If gold is this strong with a headwind, what's going to happen when it's got a tailwind? What's going to happen when the dollar gets weak? Because if the dollar is still near the highs, it's more likely to go down. And when the dollar starts to go down, that's when the gold rally is really going to pick up. And all the people who are following Scott's nation's advice to short gold, that's when they're all going to get stopped out. Now, at least he has the sense to put in a stop because that will limit his losses. Uh, But the losses are going to be there. And the fact that the only real talk about gold going on now on CNBC is that you should short it. To me, this is just more uh, of a reason to believe that this rally has legs and that we're going quite a bit higher. Now, also, there's been a lot of other bad economic news that came out last week. I, I forgot to mention this on the podcast that I did on Friday, but... We got the uh, the results on student loan delinquencies, all-time record high. I mean, of course, we have a record high amount of student debt, but we also now have a record in the delinquencies on that debt. And, of course, this is coming when the economy is supposedly good, when jobs are supposedly plentiful. So if we have these record high delinquencies now, when times are supposedly good, Imagine what's going to happen to student loan delinquencies during the next recession. The same thing goes with auto loans. Last week, we heard that the delinquency rate on auto loans, not just the amount of loans that are delinquent, because that's probably an all-time record, but the percentage of loans that are delinquent, and they define delinquent as missing three car payments in a row. So the percentage of people who have a car loan who have not made a payment in more than three months, is at a 10-year high. So you have to go back to the Great Recession, 2009, to find auto loan delinquency rates comparable to what we have today. Now, how can that be? Because back then, unemployment was 10%. Now it's only 4%. Yet we have all these delinquencies. I mean, people make their car payments, right? I mean, the only reason you're not going to make one is because you can't afford it. Because after all, if you don't make your car payments, they repossess your car. And you know, most people need their cars. They want their cars, so they're gonna they're gonna stop making their credit card payments before they they stop making their their auto loan payments. Because the credit cards they got no collateral. They can't take anything. You stop you know uh, paying on your credit cards. There's nothing they can do, right? And there are people sometimes they'll take out loans against their houses. You know, so they can keep their car. They can make their car payments. So to the extent that you've got this high a delinquency rate in auto loans really shows you that people just have no way of making these payments. And this is when unemployment is 4%. What's going to happen to the delinquency rates when it goes back up to 10%? Right? I mean, just imagine that. But this, again, anecdotal evidence that something is wrong. Right? The economy can't be booming if so many people aren't making their car payments, I mean, are people going to try to pretend that, hey, all these uh, employed people who own cars and have loans, they're so excited, they're so happy about this booming economy that they just forgot to mail in their car payments for three months in a row? I mean, I don't think that's the reason. People don't have the money. Right? Even though they may have a job, it doesn't pay enough to make their car payments. And again, this is also part of the car bubble, the subprime lending bubble in autos, just like the subprime lending that we had in homes. People bought cars they couldn't afford, and the fact that delinquencies are soaring is more proof that that took place. And of course, What about the lenders, the people who provided this credit? Well, there's going to be a lot of losses uh, when these loans ultimately go into default and the cars are repossessed and they can't sell them for enough to retire the debt. Also, in the last retail sales report, um, I noticed that this was the fourth month out of five that sales at restaurants had declined. And that is a big drop in restaurant sales. Uh, This is... You know, we haven't had restaurant sales this week in 25 years. So the question is, why are so many, why are fewer people eating out at restaurants? Well, it's expensive to eat at restaurants. So people are eating at home. And in fact, that helps explain the beat in Walmart earnings. People got excited yesterday. Walmart came out with better than expected earnings. But if you actually look at the numbers, um, a lot of that had to do with higher prices that consumers were paying. So that's inflation because remember, it's just the sales numbers uh, are, are, are reflection of prices too, not just volume. But if you look at where the volume was, a lot of it was in groceries, right? There was a big increase in groceries that Walmart is selling and obviously groceries at higher prices because they're raising their prices. But if more people are buying groceries at at Walmart, what does that mean? Well, maybe fewer people are eating in restaurants. So because they're not eating in restaurants, they need more groceries, right? To buy uh, food to cook at themselves. But also my feeling would be that Walmart probably is a low cost provider of, of grocery items. And so to the extent that people are buying more groceries at Walmart rather than their local grocery store supermarket probably means that they're just trying to do their best to squeeze every dollar out of their food budget. I mean, maybe they have to drive a little further to get to a Walmart, but they need to do it to save money because the prices there are cheaper than they would get at a closer closer market. So while this is good for Walmart, it may be bad for other uh, supermarkets that are selling Less groceries because more people are looking for bargains at Walmart. And the same thing, too, their online sales. Their online sales picked up. And that maybe is at the expense of uh, uh, brick-and-mortar shopping that might have taken place someplace else and is now taking place online at at Walmart. So even though those earnings were good, I think when you look beneath the surface – you still see the the anecdotal evidence of problems in the economy. And in fact, you know, I read this article, I forget the newspaper it was in. It had to do with the increasing minimum wage. And the article was about how, hey, these people, these workers, they finally won this $15 an hour minimum wage. This is great. But now they have to deal with a problem of unfair firing. You know, unfair firings, because obviously it's not fair that people who are are getting fired now, and so instead of getting the higher minimum wage, they're getting zero because they're getting fired. And people are saying this is unfair uh, that these low wage workers are losing their jobs. There's nothing unfair about it. What's unfair is the minimum wage. I mean, it's unfair to workers and it's unfair to employers. But what the liberals are going to be finding out is you can set whatever minimum wage you want, right? And I think it's, it's illegal when the federal government does it because it's a, you know they just uh, exploit the Commerce Clause, right? So I think all that stuff is illegal, the federal minimum wage. But there's nothing that says that a state can't you know, set a minimum wage if it's dumb enough to do it, right? So if states are imposing these minimum wages, they can set it wherever they want. But what they can't do is force anybody to actually pay it. Basically, the choice is either you don't hire anybody or you hire somebody and pay them $15 an hour. And for many employers, the the answer is I hire nobody. Those are my choices. Pay somebody who's only worth $5 an hour, $15 an hour, or don't hire them at all. And with that choice, a lot of employers, well, I'm not going to hire them at all. I mean, I would hire them and pay them the $5 an hour that they're worth, but if my choice is 15 or zero, well, then I'm gonna take zero. And there's nothing unfair about that. I mean, if an employer fires a worker because that worker is now too expensive to employ, what would be unfair would be to force the employer to keep hiring somebody. Because people don't hire people just out of the goodness of their hearts. I mean, people hire people because they're trying to make a profit and they're hiring people to help them make a profit but if you hire somebody and all they can add is $5 of value to your business but if it costs you $15 an hour to bring them on you're losing $10 an hour nobody is hiring people to lose money and so if you force people to lose money then they will eliminate those employees and whether they're going to automate or they're going to outsource or they're just going to do the work themselves or you know try to find a way to uh, to uh, have other people uh, pick up the slack and maybe raise their wages a little bit instead of you know waging, uh, raising the unskilled wages a lot. This is what is going on. And, you know, Illinois, I just read today, they just approved a big hike in their minimum wage. They're going to increase their minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. I mean, don't they have enough problems in the state of Illinois? I mean, can't they look around at some of the problems that other states are already having that have increased the minimum wage? But the real problem, Right. The big layoffs are going to come in this next recession. That's when a lot of the problems of the minimum wage hikes are going to really uh, show up. But of course, a lot of liberals are not going to make the connection because, you know, there's going to be several years of a lag between these big minimum wage increases and this recession. But a lot of the jobs that are going to be destroyed are going to be destroyed not really because of the recession, but because of the minimum wage law. Uh, Maybe during a recession without the increase in the minimum wage, some of these jobs or more of these jobs would have been able to be retained. Employers may have been able to afford to keep more of these workers on. Uh, But when you combine a recession with a big increase in minimum wage, I think the number of unemployed is going to skyrocket. So as bad as the jump in unemployment was in the last recession, the jump in unemployment in this next recession is going to be much worse. And again, remember, everybody who thinks a recession is eventually going to come, they all believe that it's going to be mild. And I keep saying, why would you think this next recession is going to be mild? Right. One of the things that's going to be make it so much worse is that there's going to be a lot more layoffs. But, you know, another big problem that we're going to have in this next recession, I was watching an an interview with Jeff Gunlock on uh, Yahoo Finance. And, And Jeff made an excellent point about corporate debt and the fact that so much of the existing corporate debt has such a low investment rating right that the rating agencies have low investment grade ratings on you know a lot of the current corporate debt and while a lot of the bulls on Wall Street have been talking about how great the stock market is and how corporate balance sheets are in great shape they don't look at the actual amount of debt that they have and you know the the uh, the rating on that debt because a lot of the Cash, for example, that is on corporate balance sheets has been borrowed. A lot of the earnings growth has been the result of share buybacks. Share buybacks have been financed with debt. And so companies, corporations have a lot of debt. And the ratings on that debt are low. But what's going to happen during the next recession is exactly what happens during every recession. Corporations are going to see increases uh, or decreases, rather, in their earnings. Right, due to the recession. And that is going to cause the ratings on a lot of their bonds to go down. Well, the problem is, since so many corporations are barely on the cusp of ingre- investment grade right now, during the next recession, you're going to have a record percentage of you know publicly traded companies having their debt downgraded to junk, which is a major problem. And that is going to severely exacerbate the downturn in the stock market and the economy during the next recession. And very few people are looking at this or pointing this out, but this corporate debt time bomb is there. And again, it's not just corporate debt that's going to be a problem in the next recession. It's government debt, it's 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 individual debt, the student loans, the auto loans, the credit card debt. And also the point that uh, G- Gunlock made, which is a correct point, is that his fear is that during the next recession, instead of the typical relief that we get, where in a recession, long-term interest rates fall, he says he's worried that during the next recession, long-term interest rates won't fall. And he's right. They're not going to fall. They're actually going to rise. That's what's going to compound the misery, that and rising consumer prices, because he pointed out the reason that deficits will long-term interest rates are not going to um Fall is because of the exploding deficit, because the debt is already so big. And he makes the point that I've been making that the real deficit is not what they admit officially, but what they actually borrow when you include all the off-budget items. But we're already in excess of $1.2 trillion a year in deficit spending during the boom, that during the next bust, we're going to be 2 to $3 trillion. The markets can't absorb all of that selling. The inflationary implications of that should scare the bejesus out of the bond market. So long-term interest rates should not only not go down, They should go up. So this is going to be the mother of all recessions. You know, the last recession, they say, was the worst one since the Great Depression. The next one could be the worst one, including the Great Depression. You know, by the way, one other uh, fact about the Gunlock uh, interview on uh, Yahoo Finance. It was um, four days, I think, after the podcast that I did on the Green New Deal. And basically, Gunlock took – Uh, Pretty much verbatim again, one of the points I made from that podcast, which again shows that he probably listens to all of my podcasts, and I'm very happy that he listens. The, 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 The point that he made that I think he got from me was when he was talking about the Green New Deal and how much it's going to cost and the fact that they all believe it's going to be paid for by the rich. He went back and cited the very statistics that I used to say that the World War II was financed by big tax increases on the middle class and the working poor. He went back and said, hey, in 1929, the lowest tax rate was 1.5%. And by 1944, it was at 25%, which is exactly the statistics, the years and the figures that I used on, on my podcast to make that point that The bartender has no clue when she says that we're going to pay for the Green New Deal the same way we paid for World War II or the the, the old New Deal under FDR. She has no idea that that stuff was paid for by uh, increasing taxes dramatically, dramatically. You know, again, even after the reduction in 1946, where the the bottom rate went down from 25 to 20, that was still a 1,200 percent increase from the 1.5 percent it was at 1929. I mean it was only about a 200 and, I don't know 40, 50% increase on the top bracket even though it went up to 91 it started at 25 but when you're talking about 1.5 to 20 the percentage increase is much bigger. Now, of course, it doesn't bother me that um, the Gunlock, uh, you know, uses my material uh, to help support uh, his his view, which is very similar in some cases to mine. Just, you know, my view is, I think, a lot more bearish than his. Uh, although privately, I think he's probably more bearish than he lets on publicly. I just don't pull any of my punches when I when I talk about this stuff. So it doesn't bother me. The only thing that I would like to see. Just once in a while, I would like to see Gunlock throw it in the faces of the people who are interviewing him uh, and give me credit for one of these things, you know, for one of the quotes or one of the analogies, because I'd like some of these guys to know that he listens to to me because, you know, he's like the the, the e-ticket. He is the holy grail interview. Everybody in financial media, right? That they, This is like, you know, bagging the elephant. They all want him to be on. He's the bond king. Everybody wants that interview and they'll bend over backwards uh, to get him on. Yet the same networks won't have me on at all, right? I've been banned. And the reason that I'm banned is because they think that, What I have to say is just not worth listening to, that I'm so crazy, that I'm so out there that they actually want to make sure their audience doesn't hear what I have to say because who knows, maybe they'll actually act on something I'm saying. Maybe they'll actually follow my advice and buy some gold. Or maybe they'll sell U.S. stocks and buy some foreign stocks. And we want to make sure they don't do that. So let's keep Peter Schiff off the air. But then again, they have Jeff Gunlock on and he listens to me. So I'm good enough for Gunlock, but I'm not good enough for, you know, the average investor who supposedly watches CNBC. Again, I, I said before that maybe it's kind of like, you know, porn. You know, people, people watch porn like most guys. I mean, listen, watch some porn, but no one wants to admit that they watch porn. So there are a lot of people probably not just Jeff Gunlock. There are probably other people, uh, you know, on Wall Street that maybe we've heard of who actually do listen to me but they don't want to admit it. So maybe if a big guy like Gunlock admitted that he, that he listened to Peter Schiff, then maybe other people might come out of the closet and admit it too. You know, I mean, it's like, Nobody wants to admit that they that they that they watch porn or you know I remember when, when Playboy first came out. I mean, why do you think they put all those articles in the Playboy magazine, right? Because, you know, when Playboy came out in the nineteen fifties, right, there's a bunch of naked pictures of women. That's what the guys wanted to see, but they put all these articles in there in between the women. So people could say, Yeah, you know, I buy it for the articles. I mean, yeah, I noticed the pictures, but I'm really buying it for the articles, right? See that that created the the plausible deniability, right? You could That you were interested in the articles when you really couldn't give a damn about the articles. You were buying the magazine because you wanted to look at the at the naked women. So you know, I think that if somebody like of gunlock stature admits that he listens to Peter Schiff, well, maybe other people could could admit that they listen to me too. And I think I'd like to see it thrown in the faces of some of these producers and some of these people to let them know that you know that there's value in in what I'm saying, even if they don't want to recognize it. That 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 other people do. Hey, there was one bit of good news, though, that I read out of the Supreme Court today. They, and unanimously, unanimous decision uh, to strike down a law, state laws where you, the police department could basically through forfeiture, they could just confiscate uh, assets for, you know, small offenses. Like if you if they find a joint in your car, right, they seize the entire car you know, which is completely a violation of the Constitution. It's excessive fines, which are not allowed by the Constitution. You know, I remember the worst story I read was about a guy that owned a motel. And apparently there was a drug dealer who had used one of the motel rooms uh, to conduct a drug transaction. The owner had no idea that this was going on and the police busted them. But then they seized the entire hotel Because that's where the transaction was taking place. You're talking about millions of dollars lost to the owner who did nothing wrong. Had no idea that the person who rented out uh, the room was dealing drugs. And they're just able to seize these assets. I mean, they do the same thing with cash forfeitures, right? If you're traveling, you've got cash. They just assume, oh, that cash is going to be used in a drug crime. And they just seize it. They don't have to have any proof. So it's not just about excessive fines. What about the due process? You know, what about they seize your cash just because they assume that you acquired your cash by dealing drugs when they have no proof that you did that? You know, and I hope this is just the first step in in more Supreme Court decisions. We got to go after the IRS. The government routinely seizes property in violation of due process. They're almost everything they do violates due process in the way they, they, they seize assets or, you know, garnish bank accounts. All this stuff is a violation of the Constitution. So I'm glad that we're finally getting some some good rulings coming out of the Supreme Court, which does encourage me that in 2021, when we get the socialists involved and they start passing a lot of this uh, Green New Deal nonsense, that we'll actually have a Supreme Court with some justices that have the integrity to strike this stuff down as unconstitutional because all of it is going to be unconstitutional. But I want to finish up the podcast uh, with a couple of topics. One is an update on the Jesse Smollett case. Uh, as I suspected on my last podcast, the two uh, Nigerian brothers who were arrested for the alleged uh, hate crime uh, were let go because they ratted out Jesse you know, obviously they didn't want to go down for a fake crime, uh, so they sang like canaries and they told the police exactly what happened, which was that Jesse hired them to fake this hate crime. They were paid, I think, thirty-five hundred up front. There was another five hundred on the back end to do it. In fact, you know, the brothers purchased the rope and they even rehearsed. The, the fake crime. They had a dress rehearsal. I don't know if it was a dress rehearsal. I don't know if they had the scheme ass on, but they rehearsed it so they could do it right. Now, you know, you may even be thinking, what was the point? Why did he need to involve uh, these other two people? Why didn't he just make the whole thing up? Why didn't he just say, hey, you know, I, I got assaulted. Why did he actually have to act it out? After all, none of it was on video. What was the point of hiring actors? Because once you involve other people, you open yourself up because now you have other people who can contradict what you're saying. Especially if they don't want to go to the jail themselves, uh, you know, they're going to they're gonna rat you out. It would have been easier for him to have had no accomplices and, and just you know claim that he was the victim of an attack without actually having any people. Well, there's two reasons. One is the phone call to the manager. See, when he was concocting this crime, he tried to make it too perfect, which was one of the reasons that it was so suspicious. Well, one of the reasons that he wanted these two people is because he needed people to be yelling the racial slurs so that his manager could overhear. Uh, those slurs and the MAGA country and all that, because his manager probably had no idea that this was being faked. And and so uh, he had to put on a show for the manager, which is why he was on the phone with his manager at 2.30 in the morning when he was attacked, which again, makes no sense. Why would he be on the phone at 2.30 in the morning, right? That's a great time to call your manager. Hey, it's 2.30 in the morning. I'm walking out to get a sandwich. Let me call my manager. I mean, first of all, I mean, I mean, is is, is the manager going to be awake? The manager could just, you know, what the hell? Hey, Jesse, hey, you know what time it is? Call me tomorrow. Although I read that he was uh, out, out of the country. Maybe he was in Australia. So maybe Jesse knew that. And maybe there's, you know, a time difference. So maybe 2.30 in the morning, his time, you know, was an okay time to call. But why then? I mean, he's out. It's 20, 30 degrees below I assume he's got gloves on. I mean, you have to take your gloves off to make a phone call. You got a sandwich and a salad in the other hand. I mean, you're cradling the phone. Why not wait until you get back to your warm apartment where you can take off your clothes and maybe while you're sitting down having your salad, make the phone call, right? And, of course, the whole idea that, you know, he went out. Uh, uh, to get food at 2, 2.30 in the morning. You know, initially I thought, why didn't he just call for room service, right? Because he was in a hotel. And then I realized that he wasn't in a hotel. He was at his own house, which makes it even more ridiculous. Doesn't he have a refrigerator? He had absolutely nothing in the refrigerator. Didn't have any, you know... Any yogurt in there? Didn't have a frozen pizza that he could have uh, toasted out of the, you know, in, in his freezer? That Did, Didn't he have – it? he could have made a bowl of cereal or something? Didn't he have any crackers? I mean, he's got nothing. The house is empty. There's no food. I mean, I would eat almost anything rather than go out in that kind of weather at 2.30 in the morning, right? And, hell, I mean, just go to sleep. I mean, I don't know if he was asleep. If he said, hey, I woke up and I was hungry, so I went to the restaurant. I mean, most people, you wake up and it's uh, 2, 2.30 in the morning – You just go back to sleep. That's what you do. You know, you wait till the morning and then you eat. But so none of this made any sense. But going back to his phone call, right, the reason that he was on the phone is because he wanted the manager to overhear the attack. And so he needed other people to be screaming, uh, you know, the N word or, you know, calling him gay or fag or whatever they were doing. So he needed the people. But the other reason was he wanted it on film. This is what nobody is really picking up on. Uh, And I read about this and I I, I listened to an interview that he did, I guess, with ABC where he talked about it. But when he initially reported the crime and the police showed up, he brought them down to the street where he said the assault took place. And then he pointed to a camera up on a, 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 a like a light pole or something, and said, look, here's a camera, right? The whole thing will be on tape. Get the tape. And I read that the police initially thought that was very suspicious that Smollett even knew that that camera was there, that it was kind of obscure and high up there, and how would have even noticed it? Well, I think what happened was he picked that spot because of that camera. He staged the fake assault under where he thought there was a camera. That's why he needed the actors, because it was going to be on film just so people can see that it actually happened and he didn't make it up, which is another reason why they were wearing the ski masks. So you couldn't see that the people attacking him were black and not white. And if you remember, when I first heard about this thing, and still was very suspicious, but I didn't know to the degree that he staged the whole thing. I said, hey, wait a minute. He said they're wearing ski masks. How does he know they were white? Right. If you can't see the faces of the people who are attacking you, how do you know what color their skin is? Now, maybe he just assumed they were white because they were Trump supporters, although not all Trump supporters are white. Now, he can't assume they were white just because they were yelling out the N word because black people call other black people the N word all the time. I mean, that's part of the culture. I mean, you would expect if you're if you're black and you're attacked by other black men that they're going to call you the N word. I mean, not, I mean, that they call their friends the N-word. So they're certainly going to uh, call their enemies, right, or whatever. So there is no proof that uh, these people were, were white. So what he was going to do is by having these guys with ski masks, right, attacking at night, they probably have gloves on, they're all bundled up, so you can't even see the color of their skin. But the whole thing was supposed to take place under a camera, right? Aha, ho, oh, lucky for Smollett, This attack that took place at 2.30 in the morning when there was nobody around to see it, it just so happens that the whole thing took place right under a camera. Only what Smollett did not know is that even though the camera looked like it was pointing in that direction, it was actually facing the opposite direction. And so none of the assault was actually caught on camera, which was opposite of what Smollett has actually planned. He orchestrated the whole thing the Nigerian brothers rehearsed the fake assault, which they assumed was going to be caught on video as proof that it actually happened. And since there was no audio on the video, right, it was just video, he added the extra element of being on the phone with his manager so his manager could overhear the assault. And all that, again, is just too perfect. It's just too perfect that he had all that corroborating evidence of something that made absolutely no sense from the beginning would even take place and in fact now finally I'm reading that the police are beginning to realize what I said from day one that Smollett sent that threatening letter to himself that's the reason that he turned down the security protection because if you know there's no real threat then you don't need security if he actually was surprised to receive that letter because it came from a third party he would have been scared you know, it had a picture of him with a noose around his neck and a gun pointed to him and you're going to die and stuff like that. I mean, who would turn down free security unless you knew that there was nothing to be worried about because you sent the letter to yourself? And initially, from what I can tell, that was all he was planning to do. He was trying to get a lot of publicity just based on this letter. And when the letter didn't result in enough media coverage, then he came up with the idea of of the fake attack. In fact, that is what the brothers told the police. That is how the whole thing evolved. It was, hey, we didn't. he didn't get enough of reaction to the letter, uh, and so he concocted this scam. Now, of course, after all this came out, Smollett is still denying it. In fact, he's claiming that he's a victim again. He's saying he's being victimized because people aren't believing his story. Well, they're believing the story of these other two men who are telling the truth. Now, are they the ones that are lying? Right? Why is Smollett telling the truth and they're lying? I mean, what they're saying makes a lot more sense. I mean, first of all, what was the motivation for these two Nigerian brothers to fake a hate crime against Smollett? I mean, what do they get out of it? Nothing. They didn't have anything to benefit. All they have is, well, the $3,500 that they got paid. But if they didn't get paid, right, according to Jesse Smollett, he had nothing to do with it. And these Nigerian brothers, right, they just decided on their own, Uh, to put on ski masks, grab a noose, grab some bleach, uh, and, and, and attack Jesse and pretend they didn't know him and pretend they were white, and they just assaulted him for what? The fun of it? I mean, they had nothing to gain. The only person that had something to gain was Smollett because he becomes a hero, right? I fought back, right? I fought the F back. I punched them in the face. I'm a tough guy. Right? So he gets to be the tough man who fights off two attackers. And he now is you know, a victim on a big scale. He's a hero of the left. It really makes his career. I mean, whether or not they were thinking of writing him off of Empire or not, who cares? Now he's a household name. Everybody knows who he is. Right. So this was a publicity stunt with the benefit of also... Hurting Trump and helping to push a Democratic agenda, which he signs on to. He's a big Democrat and he supports uh, Democratic candidates. And so this is a twofer. It allows him to damage the right, to damage Trump, to further the narrative of racism and you know, and homophobia, and help his career. So he's the only one that has something to gain, right? So why should we believe him and and not believe? Uh, the two Nigerian brothers. I mean, they're black too, right? I mean, they're victims, although I guess Smollett is a double victim, right? He's black, but he's also gay. And I guess these Nigerian brothers are straight. So he out-victims them two to one. So I guess if you're if you're a double victim, then, then we have to believe you. And if you're only a single victim, well, then you're lying. But, of course, this is all nonsense. That's why the police let these guys go. Their story made sense. Smollett's story doesn't make sense at all. In fact, the police want to talk to him again. And the lawyers, and he's all lawyered up now of course, are advising him not to do it. They're taking this whole thing to a grand jury. And I'm sure that Smollett is going to get indicted for filing a false uh, police report, which I think has up to three years jail time for Smollett. The thing that uh, I'm still thinking about is that did Smollett act alone, right? Or did Smollett have any help? Was there a conspiracy? Did other people know that this was going to happen? People in politics, because a lot of it seems too coincidental to me. You know, first of all, before I even get to that topic, you see all these people on the left are so upset that this didn't happen. I mean, I'm actually seeing people complaining about the Trump supporters or conservatives who they say are rejoicing or celebrating the fact that the uh, the, 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 the hate crime was a hoax. Well, the liberals are actually upset that the hate crime didn't take place. Think about that, right? They're finding out that this horrible crime that they described as horrific, right, where these people just grabbed this black man and, and, and beat him up and threw a rope on his neck in a mock lynching and poured bleach on him. They all describe this as a horrible crime. They've now found out that it didn't happen. Rather than being relieved, right? That there's less racism and less hate and homophobia than they thought, they're upset. They're upset that it didn't happen. They wanted it to happen, right? Why is that? Because liberals want racism. They want homophobia. They want all this to happen. Look, just like they want poverty. I've talked about this for a long time, how the poverty pimps on the left, they want people to be poor. Why? Because if people are poor, then they'll vote for politicians promising them something for nothing. Hey, you're poor. The solution is me giving you this welfare or me giving you uh, food stamps or all this. So if your voters are poor and you're selling these anti-poverty programs, you need poor people. right? The last thing the left wants is an end to poverty because then they're out of business. Well, the same thing now with uh, racism or homophobia or sexism, because it's not just poverty that the left is selling. It's victimhood. It's you're poor because you're a victim. It's not because you did anything wrong yourself. The, the, the deck is stacked against you. You've got these evil you know, white men who are keeping you down because they're bigots, right? And they're racist and they're homophobes or whatever they are, right? And so in order to scare the victims into voting you, you need something to scare them. You need these hate crimes. And if they don't exist, then you have to manufacture them. So that is why the left is so upset that this hate crime didn't happen because they want so much for it to happen. They want more hate crimes. The problem is there's not enough of them. Right? There's a shortage. There's so much demand in the media. This is all they want to cover. They want ways to show how much hate there is and how much bigotry there is and how much uh, race you know, crimes there are. And since there's not enough, they, have to, they make them up. But the minute they see one, the minute somebody says, hey, I'm a victim of this crime, oh, perfect. Let's run with the story. Let's not even bother to see if it even makes any sense. Let's not wait for the facts. Let's just go out there because this is what we want because it furthers our narrative. But the point I wanted to make on the politics of it is, you know, there's actually a bill that the Senate just passed. And I read it was unanimous. And I'm I'm not 100 percent sure, but that's what I read. And this is the anti-lynching bill. And the Senate just passed it, I think, just right around Valentine's Day. I mean, after the Smollett incident happened. And so to me, it seems very coincidental that at the time Congress is voting on and passing an anti-lynching bill, that you have a fake crime that actually satisfies all of the conditions of this bogus anti-lynching bill. And the reason that I'm calling this anti-lynching bill bogus is because it has absolutely nothing to do with with lynching, right? I, I just here's the definition of lynching, right? I'm lo- I've looked it up on the internet. A lynching is an unlawful murder by an angry mob of people. Throughout history, dominant groups have used lynchings as a way of controlling minorities. So when you're talking about lynching of black people, you're talking about a white mob taking a black person, tying a rope around his neck, throwing the other end of the rope over a tree, and hanging that black person on that rope until he is dead. Murder. Mass murder. Right. Lynching is really bad. Right. And for a long time, over 100 years, they've been trying to make lynching a federal crime, but they haven't been able to do it because it's already a crime. Murder is a crime. Right. Murder is a state crime. The federal government should have no role in murder. I don't care if somebody is shot or lynched. It doesn't matter how they're murdered. If they're murdered, it is a state crime. The The Constitution sets out three crimes for the federal government. Piracy, counterfeiting and treason. That's it. The rest of it is supposed to be handled by the states. And up until now, Congress, in its wisdom, refused to make murder a federal crime. Until now. Until you have the Senate passing unanimously the first anti-lynching bill. Except it has nothing to do with lynching other than the title. I am reading from the anti-lynching bill now. Senate 3178. And if you skip through all the first part where it talks about how bad lynchings are over the years, and you just get to section 250, which is titled lynching. I'm gonna read it word for word. It reads, one, offenses involving actual or perceived race, color, religion, or natural origin. So it's not even their actual race, but the perception of their race or religion, whatever. If two or more persons willfully cause bodily injury to any other person because of the actual or perceived race, color, religion, or national origin of any person. And then it goes on, you'll be in prison not more than 10 years or fine, blah, blah, blah. But that's it. So they have now defined lynching as causing bodily harm to another person. That's lynching? Lynching is causing bodily harm? I mean, it doesn't even say what type of bodily harm, any type. So if if you punch somebody, you've now lynched them. Although, uh, if you read if you if you read it again, it's two or more people. So in order for it to be a lynching, you have to have at least two people, which is coincidental about the alleged or the the the, the made up assault of Jesse Smollett. He was attacked by two people, and what those two people did qualifies under this act as lynching because they. They scratched his eye. There was some bodily harm. So, you know, according to this law, basically, you got two kids on a playground, you know, and they push another kid. If the kids who are white and they push a black kid down, he skins his knee. He's been lynched. I mean, come on. I mean, now, anytime you hurt somebody, you've murdered them. You have lynched them. I mean, this takes the cake. You know, when it comes to uh, looking at rape, right, where, you know, now you you pat a girl's ass and somehow you've raped her or you sexually assaulted her. Well, now all you have to do is, you know, scrape somebody, push somebody down and you've lynched them. Now, of course, they still had to work this thing in to the interstate commerce clause, right? Because that's how they're gaining jurisdiction on this by trying to make it interstate commerce. So there is another section B, circumstances described. It says, for the purpose of Chubb Tactor A, the circumstances described in this subparagraph are that, one, the conduct described in subparagraph A, which is, you know, the, the bodily harm, occurs during the course of or as a result of travel of the defendant or the victim. So you had to travel, you know, I'm not really, you know, across the border. I'm not sure at what time period you, you, the travel had to take place you know, within the assault, but it just it's, it's, it's broad on that. But then it says, or using a phone, the internet, the mail, or any other channel, facility, or instrument, or state of foreign commerce. So in other words, what made this assault or this alleged assault, if it actually would have happened, what made it a lynching according to this act was not just that two people committed bodily injury and they said it was because of skin color or sexual sexual orientation, but because Smollett was on the phone. See, if either the defendant or the perpetrator is on the phone, then the fact that they were on the phone at the time of the assault means they were engaging in interstate commerce somehow, and therefore the government has jurisdiction to go after this made-up crime. Oh, and by the way, uh, number two under under the prime, it says, in general, if two or more persons in any circumstances described in subparagraph B, willfully cause bodily injury to any other person because of the actual perceived religion, uh national origin, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity or disability of any person, right? So the the other thing about the 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 fake attack that was scripted by Molette is not only did he fall under Uh, Number one, in that it was because of his skin color. It was also because of his sexual orientation. So it was a double lynching because he was lynched because he was black and he was lynched because he was a homosexual. Of course, he wasn't lynched at all. He was scraped. Maybe he was punched, but it is not a lynching. But we have now redefined the term lynching. And in fact, what this does really is it undermines the legitimacy. There are people who were actually lynched. Throughout history, there are actually people who were murdered, who were put to death by mobs. But you diminish that by saying that what is happening today is a lynching. In fact, why do we even have this bill? I mean, when was the last time somebody was lynched? I mean, 30 years, 40 years? I have no idea when the last time a mob of white people actually lynched a black person. There is no reason to have an anti-lynching bill. This is a bill for which there's no purpose The only purpose is to pretend that there are lynchings, and that's why all the Republicans who voted for this are a bunch of cowards because they're they're helping to perpetuate the false narrative that there are so many lynchings going on that the government needs to protect all these victims from lynchings, that white people are going out lynching black people all the time, and now we need a law. I mean, I I know, I get it. I know why the Republicans voted for it because no one wants to vote against the anti-lynching bill, right? Oh, you're in favor of lynching? Of course not. Nobody's in favor of lynching. This bill has nothing to do with lynching. Remember, I always talk about truth in legislating, which doesn't exist, right? The Patriot Act, the most unpatriotic act ever has nothing to do with patriotism, but that's what it's called. This act has nothing to do with lynching. This is just throwing a bone to all the victims, right? Because what this law says is if you are a victim, right, if you're in the victim class and if two or more people, you know, punch you or push you or scrape you, it's now a federal crime, right? So long as you can find a way to push it into the interstate commerce clause because you you, you use a cell phone or you travel, you did one of these things or you use the internet, Right. Which everybody does. Right. So all of a sudden now this is a big federal crime. People have to we have to, you know, federal prosecutors, 10 years in jail. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. And the fact that the the Republicans have played into it because they're afraid to stand up and say, I'm going to vote against this bill because it's B.S., because it's not a federal crime to punch somebody, it's not a federal crime to scrape somebody or to push somebody. But this is what we're doing, and we're and we're calling all of this conduct lynching, right? Just to bring up the the memories of lynching and and how horrible lynching was. And now we have this anti-lynching bill with with lynching all over in the titles. Yet the titles don't mean anything. It's the actual language of the law that counts and there's nothing in here about lynching. If this bill actually said that it is a crime to lynch somebody, meaning hang somebody by the neck until they're dead, okay, right? Then it would be an anti-lynching bill. I would still be against it because lynching is already a crime under state law. But if they really wanted to make an anti-lynching bill, fine. uh, I wouldn't vote for it, but it would be a complete waste of time because nobody is being lynched. But what they did is they basically made it a crime to do anything violent, to cause any kind of bodily injury to somebody. No matter how insignificant or minimal that bodily injury is, as long as it's at least two people who are involved and the government could then claim that the two people acted based on Race or sexual orientation or handicap or gender, any of this stuff, which, of course, again, requires the government to be the thought police to try to pretend or that they know what motivated somebody to do something. Right. I don't think it makes a difference. If if two people attack another person and and harm them in any way, I don't care uh, if they did it because they didn't like. Uh, the person's gender, or the person's uh, religion, or the person's race, or they just they just didn't like him for some other. They didn't like the color of his clothes. Uh, you know, they just they, they just didn't like the way he looked, or they just they were just randomly assaulting people, and it, you know it, you know that was the unlucky guy, and they they just attacked him, or they you know it doesn't matter to me. It you want to punish the act, you want to punish the crime itself. The only time that motivation is really important is when you talk about murder, was it premeditated? Did somebody plan out and advance the murder or did they act in the heat of passion, right? So there's a difference between mad slaughter and first degree murder. And so there, you know, there's some importance as to the motivation. But when you're just talking about two people at a bar and they get into a fight and if, you know, the reason is because the guy uh, doesn't like blacks, and, 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 and he gets in a fight with somebody because they're black or he gets in a fight with somebody because they're homosexual. That doesn't make any difference versus he gets in a fight with them because he just doesn't like what he said. Or maybe they were interested in the same girl. and it, Whatever. It doesn't matter. It's the same crime and it should have the same punishment. And they should all be state crimes. None of them should be federal crimes. But this is what we're doing. And all this is about making the federal government bigger, making the federal government more powerful. The more federal crimes there are, the more powerful the federal government is. The larger the federal government gets, the bigger the bureaucracy and the less uh, individual liberty. We diminish state rights. All these Republicans who voted for this nonsense, this democratic fraud, because they don't have any backbone, what they're helping to do is expand government and diminish uh, the rights of the states at the expense of the federal government. Now, obviously it hasn't passed the House yet, but I'm sure it's going to pass the House. I mean, if it passed the Senate, the Republicans still control the Senate and it passed the Senate. The question is, will Donald Trump sign this? This will be a real test if he actually is in a little bit you know, you know, gonna try to drain the swamp. Is he can can he rise above the fray just a little bit to call this thing out? Everyone wants to talk about how gutsy he is and how he's willing to stand up. Let's see if he'll stand up against this. Let's see if he's willing to take the attacks that he's in favor of lynching right by vetoing a bill that has nothing to do with lynching that is trying to use lynching that is basically doing a disservice that's you're basically stopping on the graves of every black person in history who was actually lynched you are diminishing their suffering you are diminishing their crime by trying to pretend that somebody getting punched you know somebody getting pushed and they just get minor injuries that that's the same thing as being murdered being hung by your neck until you are dead this is complete lunacy this is where we are now as a nation and somebody's got to stand up and say i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore <laughs>